What a great song, Hannah. We give thanks to God. Thanks be to God who saves us through Jesus. Thanks be to God for his unending mercies and his grace that is greater than all our sin. And we, whether we sing in his presence, pray in his presence, dance in his presence, he just wants to hear from us because we love God because he loved us first. And our love and our worship is just a response for the love and the grace that God has shown us every single day, especially in Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today we're going to get right into our message about God's people, a biblical response to racism. And I want to give you a reminder, which we've done every week. I want to tell you what this message today is not. This message today is not about politics. This message is not about police, uh, even though we saw an episode in Kentucky this week with Brianna Taylor where police officers were not charged for her death uh, and the angst that that has caused many, many people in this country. Um, so we, uh, even those realities are with us here in America. We're living through traumatic times. We want to get God's perspective and understand what He thinks about race, about justice, about loving our neighbors ourselves, and what does that mean when we spell it out in a multicultural society like the United States of America? So uh, today, just uh, a recognition, friends. We are living in traumatic circumstances. There, there are three things going right now besides the, the smoke and the, the heat wave uh, and, the, and the weather that we're going through in California. We're also going through a, a traumatic, divided, controversial national election. We've got racial uh, injustice and reconciliation that we've been working on, uh, especially this year. And then we also uh, don't forget about the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic that is still with us and we're trying to work through. So one of my prayers is always, God, just please kill the coronavirus and allow the churches, allow God's people to gather together and to do what you want us to do for the glory of your name. Amen? So that's where we're at. We're trying to find healing and comfort. Some religion scholars uh, today are warning that healing cannot happen without the American church telling the truth when it comes to our church's record on race our church's record on race. So one of the things that I want to bring up is just a, a little bit of history. In Atlanta, Georgia, back in 1963, there was the biggest church in the southeast. It's called First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Now, you may know of that church because there's a famous preacher, pastor, teacher that has been preaching there for 50 years. He just announced his retirement this last week. His name is Dr. Charles Stanley. Well, before... Dr. Stanley was there at First Baptist Atlanta. They were going through some problems with segregation and integration. And in 1963, there were some African-American Christians who came to the church knowing that it was segregated, knowing that they wouldn't be welcome. But they did these things called kneel-ins, and they attempted over a course of week after week to try to get into the church because they wanted to worship together. They wanted to transform segregation into integration. And unfortunately, at that time, they were barred from the doors. Now that's, what is that, 57 years ago? That's not that far back in history. And yet that was still happening. 
And even when the church members, over a course of time and a series of meetings, when the church members of First Baptist Church finally voted in uh, to allow African-American Christians to worship with them, they tried to sit them in a segregated area. So <laughs> segregation uh, was still a big part of the history of our country and attempts to cut it out uh, in some ways remain today. Today, uh, a recent Barna survey says this, that there are about two-thirds, 66% of Christians who now agree, and the younger you get in the populations, it's interesting, the older generations don't believe it as much, the younger generations believe this even more, that two-thirds of Christians agree that the United States has been oppressive to minorities in the past. And I think one of the problems is there are people will say, and even good, well-meaning Christians who'll say this, you know what? We have had some problems with racism in the past. There has been racial injustice. There's been discrimination in the past. But now it's 2020, and we have integration. We have laws. The Civil Rights Act was passed banning any kind of uh, discrimination based on race or color, or gender, or ethnicity. So we put all that behind us. And the, 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 the response that I have coming back is, oh, really? Have we? Have we fully integrated in our society? Um, let me give you a definition of racism. We've done this every week, and I just want to remind you. What is racism? What is ethnocentric uh, mentality that believes that my people are the ones that do things right. My people are the one who believes what is right. And if you don't believe what I believe or act the way that I act or you don't culturally share the same values that I have, then you are, quote, not my people. And when you have that attitude, you are going into the area of racism. And racism is the belief that groups of humans possess different behavioral traits corresponding to their physical appearance mostly skin color, and can be divided based on the superiority of one race over another. See, it's, if, you re, if you guys saw Lisa's Full Throttle Thursday that she did for us this last week, she reminded us, she said, one thing we learned when Lisa and I were missionaries in South America and Chile is that when a culture does something differently from us, when they act in a different way or they have different values, it's not that, that we're right and they're wrong. A lot of times, it's just differences. It's not rights and wrongs. It's just differences. But that takes growth. That takes personal growth on the inside of somebody to realize that just because somebody doesn't look the same or act the same or talk a little differently than I do, that doesn't mean that they're not my people, not my tribe, and I'm better than they are. Therefore, I, have the, I can have a superior attitude. When you delve into that, that's where the racism comes in, and God does not want us to act that way. Racism can also mean prejudice, prejudging people based on appearances, judging a book by its cover, on discrimination, on antagonism directed at other people because they are of a different race or ethnicity. So we have to keep that in mind. And Phil Vischer, uh, he is one of the guys that I've been watching on YouTube. Uh, he's, he's put out two great videos called Race in America, part one and part two. In part two, Phil wanted to answer some questions that came up from well-meaning Christians who responded to his first video, Race in America, part one. 
And so he looked up some statistics about the 1960s and the war on poverty. It's very interesting how America's attitude changed about whites and blacks and poverty and who's living right and who isn't living right based upon what they saw in the media. You wonder about the media's influence in people's lives. Well, check this out. In 1960s, the three biggest weekly news magazines were Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. And I remember, Lisa, when one of my biggest um, pluses that I got when we were living in Chile was we were able to get an international subscription to Newsweek in English sent to us in Chile. So I felt like I could keep up on what was going on with the world on a printed magazine that came once a week. Well, Time, Newsweek, and, and U.S. News and World Report, they were the biggest magazines at that time. In the 1960s, they all changed their photos on dealing with poverty. When they, whenever they showed photographs of people in poverty, in 1964, 75%, three-quarters of the photos were on white families. And, the, and that sort of paralleled the percentage of the people in America who were poor and in poverty. But in 19, by 1967, that had completely flipped over. Three years later, 70% of the photos in all these magazines were not of white families anymore. They were black families, even though black families back then and black families today comprise only 30% of the poor and those in poverty in America. 70% of those in poverty in America and the government spending does not go to support poor black families. It supports also to support poor white and Latino families and Asian if that, if that applies as well. So it's, it's just interesting how our news uh, shapes the way that we perceive things. As God's people, friends, we wanna grow in our Christian faith. We want to become better at recognizing our own blind spots. You remember we talked about that last week, blind spots, actual places in the human retina that don't receive light receptors and cannot see in a certain place or area, and we're not even aware of it. Well, in our culture and our attitudes, we also have our mind, our mind bugs or our blind spots. We're not seeing people... We're in terms of, of having equal value to God. We're starting to see people in terms of us and in terms of them. Uh, we we want to grow in our ability to see other people the way God sees them, people who are made in the image and likeness of God. We want to see fellow Christ followers and loving our neighbor as ourself that way. Now, last week we also saw from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God has a call on every one of a Christ follower's life. If you are a Christ follower, God has put this call on your life based upon what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about the ministry of reconciliation. You remember what it says in verse 18? All this is from God, who, who, excuse me, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It goes on to say that, that God was in the world reconciling the world to himself through Christ and God has committed to us, you and me, Christ followers, the message of reconciliation. That means that you and I are to go out and become cross-cultural, justice-oriented disciple makers. 
cross-cultural, justice-oriented disciple-makers. Now, how does that play out? It plays out on two levels, friends. It plays out on the individual level and also on the societal level. There are two levels of reconciliation. On the individual level, you and I obtain righteousness with God through our faith in Christ. So righteousness is something that happens in your soul with God. When you put your trust in Jesus, God makes you righteous in his sight. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now that we have peace with God through Jesus and we've been reconciled to God through Christ, God says, I want you to be a minister of reconciliation in your world. And so we go out to other individuals and we communicate to them by sharing the good news of how they can become righteous in God's sight. But then we also look out at our society and we say, wait a minute, if, if every person is a sinner in need of a savior, that means that when sinners get together and they form societies, that society is also going to be dark and it's going to be broken and it's going to discriminate and it's going to have the haves and the have-nots. It's going to have people who, were, are, who think themselves to be superior to other people based upon their class, based upon their skin color, based upon their education, based upon their wealth. And, and so society, who are, who are now comprised of a bunch of sinners, they will create these systems of injustice. And so being a minister of reconciliation on a societal level means that we need to call out injustice whenever we see it, and we need to bring God's justice and fairness where everybody is equal in God's sight, where we love our neighbor as ourselves, and where nobody gets treated poorly or discriminated against or, or, or kept out of the benefits that a society or a people have. So let's go to an Old Testament example of that because one of the prophets in the Old Testament called out God's people for their injustice on a macro level. He called, he called God's people, Israel, to say, you guys are blowing it when it comes to social justice. And we find it, of course, in Micah chapter 6. Many of you know verse 8, Micah 6 verse 8, where we sing it. Uh, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee. In fact, if you come to our parking lot praise tonight uh, at 5 p.m., that is one of the praise songs that we're going to sing together, Micah 6.8. But he starts out, and the prophet is talking to God's people, and he's thinking about a person trying to please God, trying to get right with God, knowing that they've missed the mark. And so... The prophet writes, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? In other words, I've, I've lived a bad life. What does God want from me? He wants some kind of a sacrifice. So I'm going to give him some kind of a sacrifice, an animal on the, on the altar uh, at the temple for a burnt offering, or I'm going to give him an offering of, of oil or something like that, 
Uh, and then if you delve into the dark side, which is going after the false religions that were around Israel at the time and the idolatrous nations around, one of the things they did was, hey, if you really want to please God and you want to appease him and stop him from being angry with you, you're going to have to offer your firstborn to the Lord. And the Lord totally prohibited that in the law of Moses. But there, he's even going through the mentality of God's people saying, well, it, 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 what do you want from me, God? How do I please you? Shall I offer my firstborn to the Lord, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then the prophet says, no, this is what God says. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He says, what does God want from me? He has shown you, O mortal. That's uh, like saying, uh, remember that you and I are mortals living on this earth, that we're, we only live a short time and then we die, that God is the creator, we are the creation, we are dependent upon him for our life. So it's just a reminder of that. Put yourself in the right place before God. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things. He says he wants you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's unpack that real quick. What does that mean to act justly? Well, how about it? you are to remain just and right in all you do? You are to do justice. You're not just to feel something. You're not just to say, well, theologically, I know that I'm supposed to practice justice or I need to have a warm feeling toward all people around me. God says, well, all those things are good, but you need to go further. You need to do what is just. You need to call out injustice wherever you find it. Because the only way to get rid of injustice is to replace it with justice. So to act justly, to love mercy, to practice kindness, right? Not just to talk about it, not just to say, well, we need to be nice to all people, but it doesn't change the way you live your life. No, to go out and say, who can I practice kindness to? Who can I pour out compassion upon who needs it today in my world? And then thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. Freedom from pride, no more arrogance. You, you, you act in a lowly manner, and that's not a, a self-condemning manner. That's just to say walking humbly with God means I have a right understanding of who I am before God, that, that I am a child of His, that I am a new creation in Christ, that He has made me a minister of reconciliation, and He wants me to walk this world and to spread justice and mercy wherever I go. That's what God wants from you. It's action. It's not just words. In fact, Jesus, of course, said this in John chapter 13. Jesus had just finished uh, washing the disciples' feet. You remember even Peter protested? How many times did Peter protest something that he wanted Jesus to do? Oh, Jesus, you, you can't go to Jerusalem and go to the cross. Uh, uh, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Uh, Jesus, uh, I'm never going to deny you. I don't care what everybody else does, but I'll never do it. Peter kept making these mistakes. One of the mistakes Peter made was, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. The lesser person, this is again a, a, a way of discriminating. The lesser person is the one who washes the feet of a greater person. A greater person should never, a person who has more status in society should never be washing the person who has a lower status in society. 
And yet Jesus picked up the basin and the towel and he washed his disciples' feet and he said, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so because that is who I am. But if I, your teacher and Lord, am willing to wash your feet, then you, all, you also should wash other people's feet. And he said, now that you know these things, and here we go, because remember Micah 6, 8 says to do justly, to act justly. Jesus says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed just because you know them. No, nope, that's not what he says. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So doing what is just is acting the way God wants us to act. So there's an Old Testament example from Micah. There's an example from Jesus on the day before he went to the cross, washing his own disciples' feet, humbling himself, doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with his God, modeling for us the life that he wants us to live. Well, now we come to a story in the New Testament where there was discrimination, there was racism, there was hatred, and Jesus tells a story to try to blow all of that up and to say, you say, Jewish people, you've thought this way for hundreds of years. You need to stop thinking that way. You need to start thinking in a brand new way. Now, before I get to that story, I want to remind you, there's, a, there's another pastor in Texas, and he's white. He's Caucasian. I think he's whiter than I am, and that's saying something. His name is Matt Chandler. He's a pastor of a large church called the Village Church in the Dallas, Texas area, He's talking about racial justice back in June. So I imagine he was talking about this only a couple weeks after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he's, he had this to say. He was very critical of churches that would not talk about racial justice or the need for racial reconciliation. And he says, and he, makes, he made this analogy of saying people that won't talk about racial reconciliation do they have the same attitude towards sex trafficking? Do they have the same attitude toward abortion? If you see something wrong in society, do you not speak up about it? Do you not have to do something to stop it? Or are you just going to, you know, quote a few Bible verses and, and then, you know, throw your hands up and say, well, I can't do any more than that. Matt Chandler says you don't just preach the gospel at sex trafficking. You don't just preach the gospel on the issue of life and on abortion. He says, no, you act. He says, it, and he got really fired up. He said, it's this brain broke disjoint in our minds that has got us acting and then criticizing this movement. And I think he was talking about BLM, the movement, Black Lives Matter. And he says, and then all we do is criticize the movement as being evil and dark uh, while we're at the same time giving up our inheritance. Now, he could have been referencing BLM, the political entity of it, the one that's Marxist and anarchist, the one that's advocating violence, the one that is causing a lot of problems in America and really doesn't represent anything Christian at all. The, the, the political wing of BLM, he could have, and that's why he was saying, all we do, you know, you just want to criticize this movement as being dark and evil. But then he went on and he said, he challenged those who want to point out the flaws in this current movement while you have abandoned the place that we were meant to play. And he's talking to Christ followers, the place that we were meant to play as Christ followers. You can't just point out the flaws of this movement and ignore the sorrow and lament of 12 to 13 million image bearers of God in our country. 
Now, he was talking about African Americans. That's the population of African Americans uh, in uh, um, the percentage of African Americans in our country. We mourn with those who mourn, Chandler said. Yes, there are demons, there are evil ideologies at play. But that's where the people of God are meant to run. We are meant to run there with the light and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not meant to back away. We're not meant to uh, not confront evil when we see it. And we're certainly not meant to just hang back and then just snipe at people on social media. And I think that was a, a nice little sideswipe there. Uh, so, here, so here's another point. The Holy Spirit... Now, some of you guys are getting stirred up about all this, especially since I mentioned BLM, and I know there, there are so many different spectrum of opinions about BLM across America. But what I want to say is, if you really are full of the Holy Spirit and you're full of the love of Christ, you're not going to get defensive. The Holy Spirit will not make you defensive because you're able to put down your talking points you're able to drop your guard a little bit. You're able to be able to sit and listen and hear someone's plight, someone's burden. And it's like the Holy Spirit, according to Albert Tate, he's an African-American pastor in Monrovia. He says the Holy Spirit will show us how to live and how to even thrive together with diversity. So when he asked the question, what is discipleship? Remember, we're supposed to declare the righteousness of Christ on an individual level. We're supposed to declare and practice the justice of God on a macro societal level. So what is genuine discipleship? We are called as followers of Christ to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus. And if we really become like Jesus, that means we don't just think like him. Oh, I've got the right theology but we actually start doing what Jesus does, doing what Jesus does. So what did Jesus do? Let's go to the New Testament story. It's found in Luke's gospel, chapter 10. If you know anything about Dr. Luke, the only Gentile author of the entire 27 books of the New Testament, the author of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke had a special place in his heart He's highlighting Jesus' love for groups of people who were mostly considered outcasts by the rest of society. Remember, it's only in the Gospel of Luke. There's a story of the healing of 10 lepers. And remember, they were Samaritans. Uh, there was the story of the prodigal son. There was the story which we talked about a few weeks ago, the prostitute who crashed a party and found acceptance by Jesus and not judgment and condemnation. Later on in Luke chapter 19, they're passing through Jericho, and there is a chief tax collector who climbed a sycamore tree just so he could see Jesus. And Jesus looked up to him and welcomed him and accepted him and had a meal with him in his house. Luke has an amazing um, uh, ability to highlight Jesus' love for the outcast. So here's another story about an outcast. In this case, the outcast to the Jews would have been anyone who was a Samaritan. Anyone who was a Samaritan. So here's the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that's the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, they call it the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That's very interesting because Luke even says what his motive was. His motive wasn't to find out sincerely what Jesus thought about a topic. 
He was trying to test Jesus, to get Jesus to make a mistake, to get him in trouble, uh, to find out, you know, what he believes so then that expert in the law could attack it. And he says, teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think the man's motives were mixed. They weren't pure at this, at this moment. He wanted to test Jesus. But Jesus, who was known as a respected rabbi, this question is actually good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There are other places in the gospel where other people ask Jesus the same question. Good Jewish people. The rich young ruler asked Jesus the same question. And, of course, Jesus uh, is willing to have a conversation with him. That's the beauty of Jesus. Even though the person comes to him with the wrong motives, Jesus is willing to have a conversation with whoever wants to talk with him. Would that you and I have that same attitude. So the, the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So, of course, what does Jesus do? He answers the question with a question. And the man who was the expert in the law answered. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Deuteronomy 6 and the second part from Leviticus chapter 19. So now the, the man nailed it. The expert in the law actually nailed it, and Jesus commended him. He says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Notice Jesus said, believe, he didn't say this, believe this, and you will live. Uh, know that this is theologically true, and you can get an A on your Bible, on your Bible test, when you come before God. No, he says, you've got to go beyond just knowing it. Do this, he says, and you will live. But he, the expert in the law, wanting to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and he said, and who is my neighbor? Wow, there's a loaded question. Because by the time the first century came down, the Jewish rabbis had taught that somebody's neighbor, according to Leviticus 19, somebody's neighbor was not any other human being around them on the planet. Their neighbors in the first century to the Jews by this time were only fellow Jews, only fellow practicing Jews who believed in one God, Yahweh, and tried to live a life pleasing to God according to the law of Moses. Those were the only people considered their neighbors. Now, what happens when only a small tribe, a small group of people on the planet, do you consider your neighbor? What does that mean about everybody else who doesn't look like you, who doesn't act like you, who doesn't believe everything that you believe? How do you treat somebody like that? That's a loaded question. And who is my neighbor? Because what really, they're really asking is, who do I need to care about? Who do I need to love? Who do I need to pay any attention to? Who do I need to pour out any compassion on if that person gets into trouble, right? So Jesus sees this limiting, self-justifying attitude in this man, this expert in the law, and so he tells this story. He tells this story about a man, beginning in verse 28, slide 21. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. About a 17-mile walking trip. It's called the Red and Bloody Way. It was known to be a dangerous place to travel. 
Uh, this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. Something terrible happened to this man. And, of course, everybody's heart's going out to him. What's going to happen? And then he says, and a priest, and I can imagine the people said, oh, a priest came by. Well, this something's good going to happen with this. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, a priest and a Levite, two religious professionals in Israel in their day, and he too passed by on the other side. So the priest, uh, you can imagine why did the priest pass the man on the other side? The priest could have been thinking something like this. If I touch you, if you're dead and I touch you, I'm going to become unclean and then I can't go back and fulfill my religious duty at the temple. So it's going to cost me too much if I risk this by going up to you and touching you. So I'm just going to have to pass. And so the priest just passed him on by. Maybe the Levite was thinking the same thing. He was a temple assistant. He had the same attitude as the priest. He passed him by. He chose not to help him. And, of course, the story for, for a guy who's a pastor, a religious professional like me, this story's not looking too good right now. It's like uh, if you're one of those people, Jim, and you're just passing people on the other side of the road, you're going to be in trouble with Jesus, with God in the story. Because the two most respected group of religious professionals in their day, they both made a conscious decision not to help the guy who was robbing and beat, robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Sometimes the most religious people do the least to help those in need. Wow, that, that is a convicting statement. Sometimes it's the most religious people who end up doing the least, at least outwardly religious people who end up doing the least to help somebody in need. Carl Lentz is the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City, and he was making a comment on this parable, uh, the Good Samaritan, and he says the priest and the Levite, they basically had this question. If I help, if I inconvenience myself, if I risk something by helping this guy, what will happen to me? Right? So the attitude, the focus is all on yourself. The better question is, if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? He may die. He needs help. I'm here. I have the ability to help. So what am I going to do? He's at a crossroads of choice. So Jesus now gives the unexpected twist in the story. The two religious professionals had an opportunity to help this man who needed help desperately, and they pass by on the other side of the road. And now Jesus says this. He says, but a Samaritan. And you can imagine everybody in the crowd going, oh boy, he went there. He went there. Two religious people were the bad guys in the story, and now he's pulling out a Samaritan, which was a hated half-breed racial uh, there was racial enmity going on between Jews and Samaritans for hundreds of years. You know that just from John's gospel because when Jesus went to the woman at the well, she says, uh, he asked her for a drink of water and the woman says, what are you even doing? You, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And then John sort of makes this one little comment, but Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. That's kind of a nice underway, understated way of putting it. They hated each other, and yet Jesus is now bringing a Samaritan into the story, and he's going to be the hero 
of the story. I can imagine the Jewish people were just like, oh man, what are you doing? Why are you going there? What are you possibly saying, Jesus? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. So Jesus is, is pointing, is pivoting in the story now. He's making a great contrast in behavior between the two Jewish religious professional, professionals and this outcast, this person that they would not have thought was their neighbor at all, would, would have thought was somebody they could discriminate against, ignore, not lift a finger to help if they were in trouble, and they'd still be okay with God. And yet the Samaritan, he, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on him, he did more than that. What else did he do? The Samaritan also, then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn. <coughs> Excuse me. He took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which are two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Wow, that's going beyond a little personal in inconvenience. That is putting into practice loving your neighbor as yourself. That is doing justly. That is loving mercy. That is walking humbly with your God. Only the problem in the story was it wasn't a good Jewish man who did it. It was a despised, outcast Samaritan. And so Jesus comes up to the, to the expert in the law, trying to justify himself, saying, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks, asks him the follow-up question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of the three? The priest, the Levi, or the S-word? The priest, the Levi, or the Samaritan? And the expert in the law replied, the one, he knows he doesn't say the Samaritan, can't even bring himself to say the word. The one who had mercy on him. Who was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The one who had mercy on him. Uh, and then Jesus said, go and what? Go and believe this story. Go and have the right theology. He already knew the right theology. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. The man had all the checkpoints of his theology down, but he wasn't practicing it. He wasn't doing Micah 6.8. He wasn't acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with his God. He refused to do it, but the Samaritan did. And so he said, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus is saying this, stop asking who you need to be nice to and who you don't. Who's on your in list and who's on your out list? Who's on your care about these people but don't care about those people. Who is it? Jesus says, get rid of that list. When you need to love, who do you need to love? Who you don't need to love? Who do you need to show compassion to? Who can you ignore? Jesus said, the answer is nobody. You don't have the right to say us and them anymore. You don't have the right to be tribal anymore. You don't have the right to say, but, but Jesus, you don't understand. They act differently. Stop excluding those who don't look like you or think exactly like you. 
That's called tribalism, and that actually uh, what sociologists are saying, the tribalism in America, it's gotten worse during the COVID pandemic. All the isolation has pushed people to, to, so, to not be able to socialize in person with friends. Now they're going on the internet. They're finding people who believe they're finding these one-string banjo, these one-item agenda people who say this is what matters and this is what we're living for and nothing else matters and join us and be part of our tribe. And then you can attack and condemn anybody else who doesn't believe the way we believe. And people have fallen into that trap even more and more and more. Tribalism is about as bad as it has been in America in recent years. And we need, as Christ followers, to do something to change that. We're going to have to act justly and practice mercy and walk humbly with our God and be ministers of reconciliation, of righteousness, and of social justice. Instead of asking our, in our society right now that's so divided and hurting and frustrated and angry, ask yourself, how can I become a better neighbor to people who are hurting like this and angry? How can I become a better neighbor to others? How can I be more like the good Samaritan who saw a person in need and did something about it? Pastor Albert Tate of Fellowship Church in Monrovia, he's talking about this story here. He asked the question, and I thought this would be great, because this is how you can take a quantum leap forward in your Christian growth. Who would be surprised by your compassion if you poured it out on them? Who would be surprised by it? Like, really, you? You're actually stepping forward to help me? I thought you hated me. I thought you didn't like me at all. I thought I, thought you, I, thought I was one of them to you. And yet you're reaching out in compassion to love me, to befriend me, to help me if I have a need. Remember our acrostic that we've been studying now for a few weeks, friends, that help acrostic, right? So we have the H-E-L-P, the H for humbly listen, the E for educate yourself, the L, that's today's letter. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we mean by love your neighbor. Uh, it's not just getting wisdom from God. It's doing something with that wisdom. Because wisdom is right action based upon right belief. If you want to have wisdom in life, you're going to act rightly because you believe rightly. You are going to love God with, with all your heart. But you are also going to love your neighbor as yourself. Just like the Good Samaritan did. So the L means love your neighbor. Which of these do you need to act like toward a neighbor? Jesus, remember he asked that question. Which of these do you think was the neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Friends, you cannot put a wall up. You cannot limit those whom you call your neighbors. They might look and act differently from you. You might think that you have little in common with them, but you are called to love them and show them compassion. I want to say one quick thing about the Breonna Taylor case because that just happened a few days ago. And I saw a Twitter feed that was put out by Relevant Magazine, a Christian magazine of mostly millennials. And the Twitter feed was a bunch of African-American Christians who were responding to the outcome of the case. They had a grand jury case. They decided not to indict the two police officers for their shooting of the man, Anna Brianna Taylor, where Brianna Taylor died in her apartment. And they said the police officers were not going to be prosecuted for that. 
Uh, however you believe about the justice of the case, the African-American response was, was extremely strong. They were, saying, they were saying to the rest of the white Christians around them, they were saying, please don't talk about the merits of the case with us. Don't talk about why the grand jury made the right decision. Please just sit with us right now while we grieve. Lament with us. Grieve with us. Hurt with us. Don't talk at us. Just love us and be compassionate toward us right now. I thought that was such a wise word. I wish we could grow more in that area. Grow in our area of discipleship. What is discipleship? Discipleship is, is learning to practice the right behavior. It is learning to practice righteousness on the individual level. It's learning to practice just the justice of God to a broken world. That's slide 32. What is, there it is. Okay, so it's, we're learning to practice the righteousness individually and justice in a societal level. We're learning to pour out the unconditional love of God to a broken world. Friends, when we do that, we will be ministers of reconciliation. I want to go to the, to the last slide because it's just a reminder. When Jesus said, remember the expert in the law said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said this, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, right? That is the beginning of a right relationship with God. We love God because he loved us first. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you enter into a saving relationship with God. Because when you trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, giving his life for your sins, you will be forgiven and you will enter into an eternal life relationship. Jesus said this, eternal life is this, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent, right? Eternal life is a relationship. It begins by loving God with all your heart. Why should you love God with all your heart? Because of what he's done for you, that God uh, demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners going away from God, Christ died for us. If Jesus is willing to give his life for you, then you should be willing to give your life to follow him. Are you ready to do that today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are in tumultuous times. We're in a broken world. There's racial injustice. There's a need for reconciliation. There, there's a pandemic going on. There's a contentious national election going on right now. There's weather patterns happening in California right now. And Lord, more than ever, we need you. So, Lord, please, we, we bow our knee before you. We, humbly, we humble ourselves in your presence, and we say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be the forgiver of all my sins. Be the one who sets my feet on a rock and let me know that not only am I forgiven, but I have the righteousness of Christ now in me because of my faith in you. Thank you for that. Thank you for everything you've done for me. And Lord, from, from now on, help me to go out and be a difference maker in this world. Help me to be a person who declares justice and the righteousness of God to individuals and to our society. 
Lord, help us all to become ministers of reconciliation, bringing people who are far from God into a right relationship with God through Jesus. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.